tuned for more rock and roll. All right. Welcome back to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio, and you've tuned in on a good one. We've made it to double digits, folks. Episode 10. It's a milestone. It's like 80 episodes in dog years. And later on in the show, we have an incredible special guest interview here to mock this occasion. Manager, producer, and our man, and the Peter and Peter and Gordon. Music industry mogul Peter Asher will be joining us. But first, coming to us from the sandy beaches of Westerly, Rhode Island, restaurateur, politician, podcaster, musician, executive director of the Musquamica Business Association, my evil nemesis, Caswell Cook Jr. Hello, Caswell. Hey, how's it going, Don? Good. How have you been uh, managing this whole uh, craziness recently? I've been managing it all right for the last few months, but I'm really happy to be a warm-up act for Peter Asher. He's fantastic. I know. You have been bringing great music to Musquamacate Beach for years. Do you ever have Peter over there? You know, he's never played here, but he's been here. And um, uh, I had him on my TV show a few weeks ago. He was great. And I had a lot of opportunities to spend time on the road with Peter and Gordon. I used to drive Gordon to the airport and stuff because he lived in Ledger in his later years. And he'd call me up and... He didn't know a lot of people around here, and he'd say, Hey, Caswell, you want to go to the Steak Loft in Mystic? And <laughs> I'd say, Absolutely, Gordon, because, you know, getting some personal time with these people over the years for me has been really cool. Oh, yeah. And you've had quite a few on your show. Yeah, yeah. We have a great show. It's the Caswell Cook Show. It was used to be on public access for years, and then we didn't do it for, oh, a decade. And then this year we brought it back, and we're on all kinds of platforms, and we use an app called StreamYard, so we're able to be on the artist page as well. So the other night we had um, Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits on, and not only were we on our platforms, we were on the Herman's Hermits page with 350,000 followers. So you, you really get a big audience when you when you do that. That's pretty cool. That's, yeah. a, that's a good way to do it. I never saw him. I saw Herman's Hermits once at Lupo's during a British invasion reunion thing that happened in the 80s. And it was like all original members except him. Right. And I think Badfinger was also on that. And you've had Joey Mullen in, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's been down here. Yeah, we've had a lot of great rock and roll guys over the years, as you know, because you played on some of the bills with your band when we've had some of these festivals. Yeah, we appreciate that. We always have a good time. And you do run a good ship there. You have a love for Musquamacut. You can tell. You really care about your town. And uh, you do a lot for it. I first ran for office in 2002 for the town council when I was 28, and I won by two votes, which was pretty hairy. Yeah. Uh, and I got elected, and it was fun. Um, and I've been on, uh, I did 12 years, took four years off, and then I've been on for two. Um, you know, it was John McCain, actually. It was two things. It was my grandma and John McCain. My grandma would always tell us about our family history and how we had, you know, ancestors assigned the Declaration of Independence. We had um, one that was a senator, one that was a surgeon general of the United States, you know, so it was in my family blood, maybe. And then John McCain said, we, I did an interview with him when he was running for president in 2000. And uh, he said, you know, you, you should go back to your community and run for office because you really can make a difference at the local level. And I, I kind of took that to heart. So I, I credit John McCain with, with that. And then it, it's something I like to do. Uh, it's it's good to connect people where the, the average person could care less what their town council does, unless it's something in their backyard. Right. But when they call you and have a question, and for me, I know where everything is, so it's like, oh, yeah, you need to call this guy at this department or this woman over here. Yeah. And, and to be able to help people plug them into where they need to go to get their questions answered, I like that. I like paving streets. I love paving streets because it's something you can see getting done, sidewalks and streets and infrastructure. And so, I, you know, I don't know. But the biggest thing you do is you bring in the music. Even when you had your show years ago, you always had musical cast on. It was always in your blood. So how did the music passion start? Oh, I don't know. I've always liked music, just loved going to concerts. And I was like, boy, I wish I could meet this guy or that guy. And so I started doing my TV show in 1995 as a way to go backstage to like Beach Boys concerts and stuff, you know, and yeah. it was, it, that's what I did it, you know, and, and then I built up a relationship with these people over the years. And then I said, well, geez, I've interviewed them. They seem to like me. I like them. Let's put on a concert and invite them. And then that's how it, you know, so you start getting people like Eric Burden and the animals. We had Jefferson Starship, Davy Jones from the monkeys, uh, Rick Derringer, uh, you know, you start getting these people to town and then they like you or whatever. And then I started working with the group, Chad and Jeremy. And next thing you know, I'm in Florida with them, California, you know, and, and, and then that opens the door to meet this one and that one. And I really didn't realize all these people until uh, actually a few months ago when we started doing my show uh, during COVID. And we, st we were doing it like five nights a week because, you know, people couldn't even leave their house for a while, as right, you know. Right. 
And I started just going through my virtual Rolodex and I'm like, geez, we've interviewed a lot of people. And so to be able to have these, you know, these just these awesome historical, because they really are living history, you know, these guys. And so when you're talking to like, you know, one of our mutual friends, Denny Lane or Mm -hmm. people like that, it's like, boy, these guys, man, they were like, they were there. Like to talk to someone who can tell you what it was like to play at the Cavern Club in Liverpool. That's kind of mind-blowing. And he's not in a magazine or on a TV screen. He's like five feet from you. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. I know that feeling. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And, you know, not everybody appreciates it. You appreciate it. I have certain friends that are like, really? You interviewed Peter Asher? You interviewed... And I'm like, yeah. You know, the average person's like, who? But when you think about these people, I mean, and the millions and millions and millions of people these people have reached over the years, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, it's pretty cool. So I've I've just always enjoyed doing the TV thing, uh, booking concerts and bringing music to the beach and uh, or to wherever, uh, not just limited to Pasquamacate or Westerly, but you know wherever. Sure. And and going on the road was a lot of fun for for the years I did before I had kids and stuff. Just you know traipsing around California with Chad and Jeremy was pretty cool. <laughs> I was lucky enough to uh, interview Chad for Motif Magazine, and I guess Jeremy now is working with uh, with Peter. They're doing yeah, it. They're yeah. Doing it. Chad's retired. He's he's got some issues, health issues, oh. and um, he got off the road. And um, so Jeremy teamed up with Peter. It seemed to make you know make sense. And uh, they've been doing some shows. And yeah, it's fun. I mean, you know, you get these great memories. I, mean, I should write a book, but you get these great memories. I remember we were we were driving from Rhode Island to Long Island to do a gig, and we had just got Jeremy off the plane. He used to fly in from London twice a year to do a spring and a fall tour. So they hadn't been together in like four or five months. So they're like, well, we better go through the set. So here I am driving. Chad's in the front seat. Jeremy was always in the back. And they went through the whole set from start to finish in the car a cappella. Ah, and there you are. There I am. Wow. Talk about being next to living history, huh? You know, and then they're going trees. And I was thinking to myself, like, Jesus, I, I saw so many of those shows. Yeah. That if one of them had a dropped, I could have picked up the guitar and finished the, <laughs> and finished the show and the jokes. <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. But that's another thing, too. Now, you're also a musician yourself. I've seen your band, the Beach Band. Yeah, we got two bands. We got the Beach Band, and a more recent band is uh, called Soulstone, which is the band I'm going in the studio. And um, I decided, I, I wrote a book last year and published it. And I said, all right, I've written a book. It's called The Death and Resurrection of the Episcopal Church, How to Save a Church in Decline. Mm. So it's about, it's not really religious. It's about why some of these churches are dying and how to fix it. So I figured, I figured, all right, I'll write that, I wrote a book. Now I need to make an album, you know, at 46. So um, I said, all right, well, I'm going to call up some of my friends. So we went in the studio for the first time last week. I'd never recorded in a studio in my life. And the first day we recorded, we did a cover of a we just disagreed by Dave Mason, and I asked my good friend John Ford Coley to sing with me. And so there we were last Tuesday in the studio with Grammy-nominated John Ford Coley, wow. and he's he's doing harmonies to my lead vocals. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. <laughs> you know, and that's just the first track. And then uh, we got some other track. And then, you know, I never really wrote songs before, but I don't know, about six months ago, like six or seven songs came out of me. Um and I wrote them, and you know they're probably not that good, but you figure you know you put some good musicians on it and stuff, and maybe we can make something out of it, and you get input from you know your drummer, your bass player, things like that, and then they they turn into something that sure. might be all right, you know. So we have a song on there that uh, is called Wopat's Doritos. So uh, Tom Wopat from the Dukes of Hazard was uh, he played a concert last fall for us at Fall Fest in Musquamakit, and he sang just good old boys. And he called me up on stage, and we did it. We sang it together. And I'm sitting there going, "Man, I used to watch that show when I was like nine. My mom wouldn't even let me stay up late enough to watch it. And here I am, like singing with the guy on stage. And he had just gotten done a few months ago doing an episode of Madam Secretary, and you know, he's, he's, you know, a great actor besides the Dukes and a great musician. So my friend uh, went into his trailer while he was on stage and stole his Doritos. <laughs> and someone took a picture of him doing it. So I wrote this song about someone stealing Wopat's Doritos. So Tom thinks that's probably reaching, he said. Um, <laughs> but, but, but he said he would, he would, uh, he would take a listen and maybe, maybe lend a hand to it. So, you know, yeah, you kind of do. You know, you kind of get some of these people that that we've talked to over the years. Maybe Terry Sylvester from the Hollies. They, you know, friends of mine that that would Billy J. Kramer that might lay down a track or 
you know, do a do a verse for me or something. Well, and, it's certainly and be, not going to hurt promotion. That's for sure. Well, yeah, because nobody's going to buy an album by Caswell Cook, but they might buy an album by Caswell Cook and his all-star band. There you go. <laughs> hey. You know, in this industry, the way it is today, you got to use everything that's around you. There's no, there's no shame in anything. You no. just do it, have fun. Absolutely, you know. So we're we're just having fun with it, and um, we're just you know plugging along. So yeah, we got we got the record, the record. I will print vinyl. We got the record coming out maybe in six months, probably. I don't know how long it's going to take. I've never done an album before. Of all the guests that you've had, um, that you've hired, it should be said you don't do one festival a year. You do two festivals a year. We do two festivals and we do a summer concert series called Tunes on the Dunes. So, yeah, we do a lot. Who was easiest to deal with? I think Jonathan Edwards was the easiest. You know, really? he, he's so easy. He just brings his acoustic guitar. He sings all his songs. He sings Sunshine. He, he called me up and we did um, a cover of the Young Bloods get together together. I think he was kind of the easiest to work with. Yep. Um, it's always exciting when, when John Cafferty plays because he's got so many hits that people don't even realize. Right. And he, and he really has an energy and it just totally works where he's home here in Rhode Island. He's on the beach playing for a couple thousand people. Cafferty's a great vibe. Now, the opposite end of that coin, without naming any names, have you had any nightmare experiences that, unless you can want, we, unless you want to name the names? Can we swear on this show? Oh, or please no? do. The biggest asshole we ever had play at the beach was Eric Burden and the Animals. Um, really? He was a complete dick. And that's just, I mean, and this is 12 He's coming years on the later. podcast in September, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was just mean, grumpy. Um, I, you know, we had this meet and greet arranged. He walked over and like grunted at the people and then walked away. Yeah. Um, didn't say two words to me, even though that, you know, I had to pay the guy like 20 grand. Um, and then Denny Lane was on the bill with him and Denny went over to his trailer. I mean, they knew each other from back in the day and he, his, his wife or something came to the door and said, yeah, you, you can't see Eric right now. You, you'll have to come back later, Denny. And, and I'm just like, you know, people don't need to be that way now. I will say when he got on stage, he rocked. Yeah. His voice was great. The 10,000 people there thought he was wonderful, but we really just felt like, you know, you don't need to act that way. Um, nobody's that big that they, they should be mean to the people that hired them or be mean to their fans. Right. And we, that, that was, that was a bad experience for me. We opened for him in Fall River a couple of years ago and yeah, he's gruff. Um, he yeah. did. I gotta be give him credit. He did take time to take pictures, but not a man of few words. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and and maybe that's his persona too. Right. Right. <laughs> the one? other the other guy that was kind of mean was uh, Peter Tork from the Monkees. It was like he was playing at this place we have down here called Patty's, and it was a small gig, maybe 150 people, and he was doing a blues thing with Jeff Pitchell. Yep, it was good. Um. And I remember this one guy got there early and had a Monkees album. And he came up to him. He's like, oh, Mr. Torque. And Peter's like, can't you see I'm talking? Step back. Oh. And then he's like, that's not far enough. Back. Oh, come on. And I'm like, oh, my God. So then the next week, just so happened that Davy Jones was playing. So it was funny. I had two Monkees in one week at the beach. Of course, Davy was playing the big show. Right. And I pick him up at the airport. The guy couldn't have been nicer He's like, oh, I see you had Peter last week. He goes, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so that reputation precedes him anyways. Yeah, unfortunately. That's those too are, bad. I those are, but those are the only, two horror, yeah, the only two horror stories, Don. That's yeah, it. Well, everybody guess, else is nice. And you're going to have um, maybe Peter Asher in the future sometime? You know, I don't know. We have to put him at a place that's more conducive to the storyteller thing because he's got the video screen. You know, and he tells the stories, and and so he's not probably the kind of guy that I can stick out at the beach somewhere. Right, it, right. It's, it's, it's more, more of a multimedia thing that he's got yeah, going on now. Right. Yeah, I think when the United Theater opens in Westerly, I'm going to pitch to them. It's a beautiful theater that's being renovated in downtown Westerly, and um, I think that's that type of venue is great for Peter. Um, but Peter's great, and I've uh, seen his show many times, and I, I booked Peter and Gordon more than once uh, at different places around the country, and uh, he's great. See?
up this morning, but her seal was not inside. Ask her friends, but all her lips were tight. You see, please come back where you belong. I'm speaking to you, baby. Please don't leave me alone. This morning, the seal was not in sight. Ask her friends, but all the lips were tied to see. You don't do your daddy's will. There ain't nothing to you, but I love you still. Today's guest is a true renaissance man of the music business. As one half of the 1960s pop duo Peter and Gordon, he and the late Gordon Wallace scored eight top 20 hits, including the classic World Without Love. Later, he would go on to produce and manage icons like James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt, Bonnie Raitt and Randy Newman. In the 90s, he was named Senior Vice President of Sony Music Entertainment, and recently Queen Elizabeth awarded him the prestigious CBE Award for a lifetime of contributions to the arts. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Peter Asher. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, that intro took up the whole show, so we're all out of time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, You've been in show business in one form or another your entire life. So talk to me a little bit about your early foray into the limelight. Uh, Yeah, I began as a child. Both my sisters and I uh, got signed up by this agent. I think really just because we evidently were kind of a cute-looking trio, all with red hair and so on, and (laughs) and graded in height, you know. Uh, I imagine they expected us to get some highly paid television commercials or something, Mm -hmm. which sadly never happened. But uh, we did all start acting, and and we all enjoyed it. Um, We'd always been like, you know, the kind of kids that put on shows and stuff uh, of our own anyway. And, and, uh, And I did that for a number of years. My first film was when I was eight, when I had the, the, the great good fortune of, of, having my mother in, in the film played by Claudette Colbert, oh. the beautiful American movie star. Yeah. So that was, I was off to a good start. And pretty much everyone knows that your sister, the esteemed actress Jane Asher, was engaged to Paul McCartney and theatered him from 63 to 68. I understand for a period he uh, moved in with the family shortly before you and Gordon got signed TMI. Uh, talk about that convergence of events. Uh, yeah, I mean, when, you know, Paul and Jane met when she was hired by a magazine or asked by a magazine to go and do a kind of review of the Beatles' first London concert. Uh, they asked Jane as the sort of visiting celebrity reviewer to go and see what all the fuss was about. And she met them all, of course, afterwards. She was taken backstage and, and, uh, ended up, uh, Paul asked her out and so on. So she, she went out with Paul for a number of years. And the, one of the results of that was that he was hanging around our house a great deal. He was there for a lot of meals and so on. And eventually our parents offered him the guest room at the top of the house next to my bedroom. So that's how he and I ended up spending a couple of years off and on, you know, cause right. he was on the road, of course, but, um, sharing the top floor of that house and became friends. I know you met Gordon in school, but how did Peter yep. and Gordon come together as a, as a recording unit? We were in the same house at school, if, if you know, in the, in the traditional English sense of schoolhouses. Everyone knows what that means now since Harry Potter. They didn't, right, they didn't right. used to. Um, <laughs> but uh, it wasn't Slytherin, I assure you. And so we were in the same house and we ran into each other. We noticed that we both had guitar cases we carried around with us. So we ended up chatting about that. And, and we liked some of the same kind of music. We tried singing together really just to see what happened. I mean, if, if there'd been more of us who'd met the same way, we might have turned out to be a band like everybody else right. as it happened. We were just a duo. So we started singing together at school. And to our surprise, uh, because our voices are very different. You know, most duos, successful duos, you find their voices are not completely different. I mean, the Everly Brothers, yes, I can always tell which is Donna, which is Phil, mm. but it's not night and day. Right. Whereas in Gordon and me case, he had this big, rich, huge baritone Elvisy voice and I had this more of a choir boy sort of weedy white voice and uh, somehow together they sounded cool so we kept doing it 
And how about the recording contract? How did that come about? We were we were playing a place called the Pickwick Club in London. It was one of the better gigs we'd ever got. It was sort of an upmarket drinking and eating club. Uh, a lot of English actors. First time I ever met Michael Caine was because he used to come down to that club a lot and people like that. Yeah. Um, so we would play two or three sets a night, acoustic guitars sitting at the bar. We took requests, you know, the usual sort of thing, especially in a place like that. A few people would be listening. Some people would be eating and drinking. Um, but uh, one night, uh, evidently, one of the people who was listening was this guy called Norman Newell, who was a an A&R guy for EMI. And he asked us uh, if we'd come and do an audition because he liked the way we sounded. And we did, and we passed, and he, they signed us up. At that point, did you have Will Without Love? No, not at all. Talk about how no. that came to be. Um, I'd, I'd heard the song. It was before we'd, we'd got signed, I think. But I'd heard the song, and Paul had explained to me that it was a Beatles reject, that John didn't think much of it, and they weren't going to record it. And Paul, indeed, hadn't finished it. It didn't have a bridge. And I liked the song, so I'd made a kind of mental note of it. So after we got signed, we were picking songs for our first session. The idea was that we would have one day in the studio to do five or six songs and uh, see if there was anything that sounded like a single. At the time, I think Norman was seeing us as a very much a folk act. Mm. We were going to be sort of Britain's answer to the folk boom, you know, and two guys with acoustic guitars kind of thing, Peter and Paul without Mary, as it were. Right. And in the meantime, he did, you know, we, he'd picked a couple of songs already. He loved our version of 500 Miles, the old folk Beautiful. song. Yeah. And uh, he thought maybe that could be a single for us, which maybe it could have been. I don't know. But in the meantime, he also said, if you know any other good songs, bring them along. And that's when I kind of thought to myself, maybe I do. And I went back to Paul that night, I think, or the following night, and said, is that leftover song still an orphan? And he said, yes, it is. We're not doing it. No one's doing it. Uh, I haven't finished it. And I said, well, can we have it? We've got a record deal now. We, I'd, I'd like to have a go at that song. And he said, yes, you can. And he did then graciously finish it just in time for the session because it still didn't have a bridge up until about a week before the recording day. And I saw that you actually still have the handwritten copy of that. I do. Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yep. Safely right. tucked away somewhere. Yes, of course, indeed. of course. Well, actually, it's been it's been in a traveling Grammy Museum exhibition about oh. songwriting for a while. It's it's just come back, I think. So I have to I now have to bring it home, but it's safely locked up somewhere in in the Grammy vaults. Yes. Please lock me away and don't allow the day here inside where I hide with my loneliness. They say I won't stay in a world without love Birds sing out of tune And rain clouds hide the moon I'm okay, here I'll stay With my loneliness I don't care what they say I won't stay in a world without love
You know, the birds get so much credit for being folk rock pioneers. I think that's an accolade that Peter and Gordon should have got too, because, you know, you were marrying the Mersey sound with American folk songs, like Pretty Mary and All My Trials and all that. Yes. And, yeah, we uh, used to do a lot of those songs, yeah. yeah. It's just, it's a beautiful sound. Well, thank you. I mean, an, an interesting side note to that is that sometime, m- many years later, uh, I was talking to David Crosby, who, who became a great friend and still is. And, and I said, well, uh, you know, when you guys first started singing, I'm assuming you were trying to sound like the Everly Brothers, just like we were. And he said, no, that when he and Chris Hillman first sang together, uh, they were consciously trying to sound like Peter and Gordon. Uh-huh. And I went, really? See? I, that's the most flattering thing I ever heard in my life. And and he said, yeah, because, you know, all of us wanted to sound like the English bands. And sort of that was, we were the English version of the Everly Brothers, or that was our fond ambition. We never made it, but you know what I mean? Right. And so I thought, wow, that's great. So you're right. Yes, yeah. there, there's a consistency there. But of course, you have to remember, America is still the original. You know, everything we did and everything the Beatles did was based on affection and admiration for American music. It, it's worth considering that until the Beatles started writing their own songs, which they turned out to do rather well, it must be said. But uh, until that point, they had probably never sung one English song. Right. All about America. Because you guys had, no offense to him, but Cliff Richard was more like a, like a watered-down Fabian kind of thing. It might- he, was, he was. He was sort of our Elvis a bit. But, but we loved him. And we still do, actually, because he's still immensely popular sure, in England. Sure. It's, it's funny. Americans don't get it because, you know, but... He's sort of our cliff. It's like he's practically Vera Lynn. You know, there's, right. there's, a, there's a certain built-in admiration respect we have for Cliff, which, because you're right, he's not that great. You know, um, he made a couple of really great records, and he's a really nice guy and a good singer. But he was what we had, you know, and he was ours. And that, you know, the first time we ever saw a Stratocaster in England was when Hank B. Marvin had one. Cliff had managed to yeah. find one. Right. Um, and they were a fantastic band, and Hank's a great guitar player. I love his sound. So that whole thing is, for us, it's, a, it's, it's part of our national heritage sure. at this point, and we, we love Cliff. Well, not to get off on a tangent, but the first time I ever heard him was Devil Woman, and I thought, oh, yeah. who's this new guy? You know, I didn't yeah, exactly. even realize he had And I see that's not the favorite, you know, but when you get to Living Doll and, right. and Way Summer back. Holiday. Right, and, right, right. And, and Move It, of course, was the first British rock and roll record ever recorded at Abbey Road Studios. Oh. First time the, the hallowed walls of Abbey Road Studios or BMI Studios, as it was then, had heard rock yeah. and roll. Come on, pretty baby, let's move it and move it. Shake a baby, shake a a double-edged sword at that time being associated with them the beatles well no but i mean of course there are there are people who who said, would you know say oh well, they all they only made it because you know they got this song that sort of um, thing yeah which of course well yeah there you go the answer is we'll never know would we we, we got our record deal we would have had a record come out it's it, very unlikely it would have been a number one smash around the world like well without love was mm-hmm. but we might or might not have had a career it's like one of those what if questions which people are so keen on you know I, I get people all the time going what do you think if 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 John hadn't died would this have happened would that go oh, I don't know we'll never know you never know so yeah but the answer is no it was it wasn't a double-edged sword you know it was it was an, it was an unalloyed blessing it was a, a amazingly wonderful thing that we had this terrific song and and I'm certainly grateful that we were able to have some other big hits with other people's songs as well. Mm-hmm. At least it proved we weren't entirely dependent on gifts from my sister's boyfriend. Right. So, yeah, I, I, it doesn't bother me at all. You know, when people suggest that, oh, you lucked out, my response is, yeah. Yeah. And, and we made the best of it. And in the same way, it was lucky when I met James Taylor. It was lucky when sure. I walked into a club and heard Linda Ronstadt. But at the same time, you know, I, I think my own determination had something to do with it. And also to that end, Paul wrote Woman, gave it to you. Yes. And there was a whole thing about if it was just the Lennon-McCartney moniker that was getting them the hits. And he, Yeah, the press was suggesting that. The yeah. media was suggesting that anything with, with the name Beatles or a Beatle on it would, would be a hit. So he wanted to see if that were really true. The, the deception didn't last very long, but it lasted long enough, actually, to prove his point because the song was a hit already. Right, because people were asking, who's this Bernard Webb? Yes. I think in America it was A. Smith. There's some, some, some copies said A. Smith. I don't know really why that happened. Huh. And of course, in England, it's Bernard, not Bernard. Oh, too. sorry. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite all right. But, it, but the gentleman's name, since he doesn't exist, yeah. <laughs> is, is, is irrelevant, but it's Bernard Webb. Right. 
and uh, Lady Godiva. Very cool. Yeah. Great song. And that went on to be a top 10 hit in, I think, late 66. And That was written by right? Mike Leander, um, who's a great songwriter. And as you probably know, also wrote the string arrangement for She's Leaving Home. I didn't know that. That's a great. Beatle footnote. Oh. It's the only orchestration that George Martin did not write in the entire Beatles catalog. And it's a brilliant orchestration. Yeah. Yeah. So Mike Leander wrote that. Yeah, no, I didn't mind that one. Uh it wasn't, wasn't my super favorite, but it, I, I, I enjoy singing it. I sing it often. The one I really didn't like was the follow-up, Night in Rusty Armor. I thought that was really dopey. <laughs> but it was a hit. It was a hit. It was yep. a big hit in Canada. And really? we thought the Canadians were, were smarter than that. <laughs> but it was, it was a big hit in Canada. Seventeen a beauty queen, she made a ride that caused a scene in the town. Her long blonde hair hanging down around her knees. All the cats who did strip tease, praying for a little breeze. Her long blonde hair falling down across her arms. Dressed the way you are She smiled at him Gave her pretty head a shake That was Lady G's mistake Lady Godiva He directs Certificate X And people now Are craning their necks to see her Cause she's a star One that everybody knows Finished with the striptease shows Now she can't afford her clothes Her long blonde hair Lying on the barber's floor Doesn't need it long anymore I've been listening recently to uh, Hot, Cold, and Custard, which is yeah. definitely a departure from the kind of music you were making. Fair to say that's what was Peter and Gordon's foray into kind of art rock, psychedelic rock? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, we, we sort of owned the power to do that. So we did, and we, we'd written some songs we kind of liked and tried out some stuff. There's bits of it I really like. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, so much of our career runs real weirdly parallel to Chad and Jeremy, with whom we were always mistaken. Yep. And they, people would muddle us up all the time. And, of course, they did the same thing with of Cabbages and Cabbage Kings and, Kings, and yeah. The Ark, you know, that, which were great records. So, yeah, we had fun making those records. And they've become sort of collector's items. I mean, but it, this is sort of micro cult of followers of that album. It's probably about 12 people, but... but um, well, I'm one of them. A, good. No, it, it, it may seriously be a few hundred people, I think, who, who really like that record and are aware of it and, and, and have it, you know, because the vinyl is out of print and quite rare. Greener Days was actually written by David Gates, who had gone to be in Bread. Oh, I'd forgotten that. Great, yeah. great songwriter. As I write this letter, I hope you're feeling better than I am as I sit here. Back a tear Cause my mind keeps shifting Back in time it's drifting To the days when you were near Those were greener days that we knew Just me and you Sharing the world together But as they came They went away and our days of green turn into green 
Was there a specific reason that you and Gordon went your separate ways for almost 30 years? No. No, there's no specific event. I knew I wanted to be a record producer. I'd, I'd made a plan to, to become a record producer. That was a very conscious ambition on my part. Mm-hmm. An ambition that I'd formed the very first time I was, I was in the studio at all. As soon as I walked in the studio and saw what, how it all worked and what a record producer did, I, w- I was thrilled and wanted to do that. And, and Gordon wanted to make a record on his own. You know, he'd always wanted to be a rock star. He wanted to be Elvis. So uh, that both our ambitions, you know, uh, both of our plans coincided. And of course, once I became a producer and got involved with James and the whole other story, by that time, I was, yes, at that point, I was no longer interested in getting back together because I was insanely busy. I've always been very intrigued about the operations of Apple Records. I remember I read Apple to the Core, that book that came out in the 70s, and your association with Apple Records, I'd love you to just walk me through an average day working at three Savile Row. There's no such thing as really a typical day at Apple because it depended whether the Beatles were there, which Beatles were there, what the plans were for the day, and so on. But people do tend to forget that in addition to all the madness, and I've read The Longest Cocktail Party, you know, the Richard DeLello book that talks a lot about that stuff, mm. which tended to be centered around Derek Taylor's office, where because anything weird that no one knew what to do with or any people who needed to get dealt with that whose destination was unclear, they would get sent to Derek's office. So that was the sort of mad bit. But we also did, of course, sign acts, make records, put them out and so on. I had a weekly A&R meeting with as many Beatles as, as were around yeah. to talk about who we were signing and what records we were making and so on. So it was sort of hard half record company, half Beatle madness. And, uh, you know, so every day varied. Were you there while Alan Klein was there? Well, no, I, I, I was there a couple of days. He came in for meetings, but I, I resigned. I wrote my letter of resignation as soon as I heard that Alan Klein had won the battle and that, you know, Paul had lost and that Alan was coming in as the boss. I knew about him from friends in New York. I didn't like the sound of it. Mm-hmm. And that's when I left. How did you come to find James Taylor? Well, uh, the, the key, I'm sure you know, is a, a guitar player called Danny Korchmar. Oh, yeah. Great guitar player, great friend of mine to this day. Mm-hmm. Great pr- record producer, too, and songwriter. He was in a band called The King Bees, who had backed Peter and Gordon for a couple of tours. And he and I, during that time, become great friends. I was a huge admirer of his playing. He was a big Steve Cropper fan, as, I, as was I, and so on. So Danny and I become friends. Then... Sometime later, a couple of years later, I guess, he was in a band called The Flying Machine with his childhood friend, James Taylor. They'd known each other since they were 10, I think, and from Summers on Martha's Vineyard and so on. The Flying Machine was a New York-based band, um, suffered all the vicissitudes that New York could convey. They had no money. They, some of them were strung out on drugs, including James. They didn't like their management. They had a record company that made half an album and disappeared and all that kind of thing. So... The band, in the end, sort of gave up and broke up. And James decided to go to London. There was a girlfriend there he thought he could stay with, possibly. And uh, so he went to London, and, and Cooch, Danny Korchmar, said to him, look, if you're going to London, I have a friend who lives over there, who we, we still correspond, uh, Peter Asher. You should give him a call. He's okay. So he did. James called me up out of the blue and introduced himself as Danny's friend, which was more than enough for me to invite him over. He came over the following evening. Mm-hmm and uh, played me a little tape he'd made in the studio a few days before. And I was overwhelmed. I thought it was unbelievably good. And he play- picked up my guitar and played a couple more songs, and I was knocked out. And I said to him, look, I've just got this new job, as it happens, a head of A&R for a new record label. I can sign people. You know, would you like a record deal? And he said, yes, please, I'd love one. <laughs> How were they in terms of promotion But James? Was he getting... Apple, you mean? Yeah. Well, not much. I mean, by the time that the, the James Taylor Apple album came out, Apple was already not fairly getting a bit disorganized and losing a bit of morale, you know, because there were all these rows going on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think the record wasn't quite the right record. I mean, I think we could have made a better, better record, but it had some great, amazing songs on it. James James came through with great songs, of course, because they, they were all the songs he'd written so far sure. in his life. And and uh, so we had something in the way she moves and something's wrong. And, and I put a lot of orchestrations on the record because I really wanted people to take it seriously and not just think, oh, it's just another long-haired folk singer. Because at that point, if you had an acoustic guitar and sang songs that you wrote, you weren't a singer-songwriter that didn't exist. You were a folk singer, whether or not you'd ever sung a folk song. And uh, so I was trying to say, no, this guy's serious. This is great music and so on. And, you know, it, it, 
it got some fans. We made some made a dent, uh, mm-hmm. and some people noticed him, but it wasn't huge, you know. And then over, sweet baby James. Yeah, Bader. that's the album, and no orchestrations. It is just the singer songwriter. Which yeah, he, I, I went back to you know what yeah. I thought is the most important things about James: his playing, his singing, and his songs. And what of um, Linda Ronstadt? She is the epitome of rock and roll, in yeah, my she's opinion. Great, and today's her birthday. As soon as I get is up, it really? I, I shall be calling Linda. Uh, I, just, I was trying to decide actually to do it before or after this call, but mm-hmm. I haven't called her yet. But I will. No, Linda's uh, amazing. I, I was at, in New York, and somebody told me you have to go and see this girl at the bitter end. She's amazing in every respect. So I did, and she was, and she is. You've had these relationships, my God, what fifty years? You've been with these people. Yes, and I mean, it's, it's fortunately I'm still friends with James and and Linda and and. You know, um, it's a testament myself. to you. Well, thanks, and them. And them. Certainly loyalty is not something you always see in the music industry or hear about too much. Correct. So That's right. As you probably know, Gordon and I did get back together after a 37-year gap. I confess, as the decades rolled by, my assumption was that we would never sing together again. And it was actually my friend Paul Schaefer who got us back together. He was putting out on a benefit for Mike Smith from the Dave Clark Five, right. a friend of his. And his wife, Kathy, said, look, you should really try and get Peter and Gordon back together. That would be quite something because they haven't done a gig for 37 years. So he called me up. And I realized that that was going to be hard to say no to because Gordon and I both liked Mike a lot and Paul is a great friend. Plus, you knew, of course, it'd be an amazing band. So we did it and that it was successful. People liked it very much and we had fun and so on. So that's when we said, look, any other shows that people would like us to do, maybe we'll do them. And we did. And I'm glad we did because it was a couple of years only before Gordon died. And that's indeed when I had to kind of go, well, either this means I never sing these songs ever again or... I have to figure out a way to, to put a show together that doesn't have Gordon in it. Right. And because it's not as if, it's not like with bands where you can actually replace somebody. I couldn't say no. to somebody, you're the new Gordon. No. You know? No. So I, I decided to try and put together a show that was half storytelling, half songs, uh, and make it a multimedia thing with video clips and and photos and all that kind of stuff. And then I do the songs. And of course, I do have someone in the band sing Gordon's part, but it's very much not an attempt to, to be a new duo. You know? No. But there's certain cases, obviously, where his notes have to be there for the song to sound right. And I have a great musical director who does that. Yes, I have also done some shows with Jeremy Clyde. And if it was Chad, it would be a lot harder because Chad was the high harmony part, like I am. So it just is quirk of fate that Chad Stewart was the one who's retired. Um... So, and he was the uh, the Chad of Chad and Jeremy, and I was the Peter of Peter and Gordon. So I fit right into that slot. So it's Jeremy and I who sing, you know, uh, and it, that way he gets to sing Well Without Love and Nobody I Know and I Go to Pieces and Lady Godiva or whatever, and I get to sing, you know, Yesterday's Gone and, and Summer Song and so on. And sure. And Wheat for me. And it's fun because I've never sung those songs. I, I know them because we all heard them on the radio incessantly. They were great, but... But it's uh, I do that show sometimes as well. But I do a few different shows. I do some with Albert Lee. That's just him and me and a couple of acoustic guitars. No, no uh, multimedia stuff at all, and that's great too because I get to be Adam Albert Lee's rhythm guitar player, which is a, a a high ambition. And so yeah, I like to change it up from time to time. But mostly I do the the memoir show, and then when we're both free, we do some Peter and Jeremy shows, which we will be doing again, God willing, next year. There's actually a website, peterashermusic.com, that has all the gigs and stuff on it. But everything's been moved into next year, and we just hope, only hope that works. One last question. For a young rock and roll band, assuming that they have the catchy songs and a good work ethic, can you make it in the music business today? Of course you can. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, of course you can. There's tons of people making it now. Um, I mean, there's so, much, so many great singers and great players and great songwriters around now. Um, Yes, who I, who I very much admire, but uh, yeah, it's it's hard. It's it's hard. It's always been very hard. It's hard in different ways. You know, it used to be you had to get a record deal. Without a record deal, you had no hope, and that was very hard. But now you don't have to. Right. You know, you can. There's tons of great people doing very well without a record deal at all, with a major label at least, and so on. So we'll see. Woman, do you love me? Thank you.
right there on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. And I want to thank Peter Asher for spending some time with us today. You know, Caswell, before you came on, I was looking at some of the music news and guess who the number one selling rock band of 2020 is? Uh, The Beatles. Yeah. Did you guess or did you know? I just guessed, but it's so weird. You know, the the staying power. It's like, remember when um, the, the Beatles anthology came out, the albums went to number one, Free as a Bird went to number one. And then right. even when um, the number ones came out, like in 2000, that ended up making the Beatles the largest selling group between 2000 and 2010. Uh, yep. and, and Eminem was number two. <laughs> and I bet he was pissed. And then I was thinking, boy, and if you added the solo works in and the solo sales, it would be even higher. Yeah. You know, because even McCartney, when he put out Egypt Station last year, went to number one. And, and not everybody bought it I mean, or, or even heard of it, but, you know, he went to number one. You got to think that there's a, like people like me and you who will buy anything associated yep. with a Beatle. Yep. And whereas most bands maybe have 50,000 fans like that, they probably account for a couple million of fanatics, not fans, fanatics. Right. And the only other guy I know that's got a similar thing, but on a smaller scale is Jimmy Buffett. I mean, he always said, you know, whatever I put out, I can at least sell 500,000 copies because of the parrot heads. And that's just know? from touring. Right. From touring, Pure but touring. just because he's got such a network. Right. And I think that the, the, and he's got a franchise, whether it's the restaurants, whatever. The Beatles are just part of our DNA. Yep. Um, you know, my, there's, there's not a child that doesn't know Yellow Submarine. I right. mean, my kids like Ringo and, and, and we listen to, we, we have, we've been listening to Ringo's most recent album. My daughter loves his cover of John's Grow Old with Me on it. And, you know, it's just, it, these people have timeless appeal and, and, you know, Paul just still rocks no matter how old he gets. I've seen him about four times now. He's just fantastic. And I wasn't expecting much the first time because, you know, you never know. After a long hiatus, what was it, at least 15 years or so, then he, in 2002, I think he did his first of many right. tours. You know, I figured it's going to be a lot of love songs. No. He rocked the whole night. Maybe a couple, you know, a couple in the middle. He did some slow ballads, but his band is tight. Those guys are great. It's the longest band he's ever been with in his entire career. Yeah, it's coming up on 20 years. Isn't that something? It's crazy. Yeah, he um, his show is great. And, you know, I think I've seen him. I first saw him in 1990 on the uh, Flowers in the Dirt tour when I was 16 and um, saw him a couple times on that tour. And I've probably seen him 15 times at this point because I'm crazy. But um, it's one of the happiest times of my life is just being in his presence and watching him light up the stadiums. And just, just, you know, he comes out on that stage with that Hoffner bass and, Mm -hmm. you know, he's 78 years old, but he still looks like a beetle, even with gray hair. And he just has that this this energy that people just shouldn't have at that age. <laughs> well, what about Ringo? My guy just turned Jesus. 80 and he looks yeah. like a kid. He comes out on stage and he, he does jumping jacks during little help from my friends at yeah. the end. 80. I mean, 80. Remember, what, remember what 60 used to be like when we were a kid? That yeah. was old. Frank Sinatra, that was old. Tony well, I know. I, well, Don, I know you're much older than me. Oh, <laughs> screw you. <laughs> what year were you born? 71. Oh, you're only three years old. That's than me. it. Well, you're looking good for your age. Well, thank you. God bless you. <laughs> next year, <laughs> next year, you're going to be old, though. <laughs> if I make it at this age. Uh. <laughs> now, are you old enough to remember when John Lennon was killed? Yes, I was six, but I remember it. Uh, we were in New York City. We were in my grandma's apartment. Oh, wow. um, and my dad said John Lennon was shot, and it wasn't too far from here. I, and I didn't know who John Lennon was or whatever. I didn't. I didn't have my first <clears throat> real knowledge of the Beatles until um, 
1986, and I was listening to Duran Duran, Phil Collins, Bruce Springsteen, you know, what normal people were listening to. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was this concert called the Princess Trust Concert, and oh, it yeah. had Brian Adams and people that I wanted to see. And of course, out at the end comes Paul McCartney, and I said to my dad, like, who's that? Um, and he goes, well, that's Paul McCartney. He was in the Beatles, and he launches into Long Tall Sally and Get Back and stuff. And I'm like, man, he's pretty good. So then Flowers in the Dirt came out in 1989. Uh, which was a big, big album for Paul, and he had a hit, My Brave Face. And I remember hearing on the radio, and my friend Matt would always play the Beatles tapes on the way to school on our long bus ride. And I kind of put two and two together that this guy doing My Brave Face that's on the top 40 is also that guy who sang Hey Jude. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing, you know, he goes on tour. I went and saw him, and that, you know, that's the end. I mean, <laughs> I started buying everything, and meeting you know then i'm like uh, let me i gotta find denny lane and steve holly and these people that were in the bands of them just to ask stories and and that's what you know anyone that ever talked to or played with a beetle i've tried to meet or bring to mesquamacit <laughs> sure have you ever met henry mccullough he no not too long ago no um, i've never met him or lawrence juber i thought he'd be an interesting talk because i mean he was also with joe cocker that's it you got to get these guys now i mean i not to sound maudlin but they're not going to be with us for 20 years or so. Well, that's why I said to my daughter, Maddie, I'm like, you know, <clears throat> we got to go see Paul next year when he goes back on the road because, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, you're like, yeah, he's, you know, 59, 60 years old. You're like, he'll be around. But like, you know, 78, it's like, okay, he may live to be 95. But he's not going to be but- touring. Well, he says he will, but... <laughs> well, yeah, you say a lot of things. <laughs> but, you know, the, the voice is a little warbly, um, you know, even for Macca. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, you just, you don't know, like, how many more years can he do it at that level? Of course, I said the same thing last summer. We went to this huge stadium in New Jersey and saw the Stones, and I'm watching Mick, and I'm like, you know, seriously, how many more years? Because they were calling him, you know, Steel Wheelchairs Tour back 30 years ago. And it's oh, like, they've been calling them old ever since the 70s. I know, what, and it's like... What are these but, 30-year-old guys going to tell kids? They're, you know, they're washed up at this age. You can't count them out, ever. You, you can't, but when, when you know, their drummer's just about 80, yeah. you have to realize that the physical inevitability is that I right. don't know that the next generation's going to get to see the Stones in concert. Talking about concerts, and especially ones that we never thought would ever see, Brian Wilson. Oh, what yeah. a minor miracle it is that this man who, you know, he does have a certain amount of mental illness that's held him from touring and from, you know, participating fully. But he, my God, he's a, accomplished so much. Mm. I've seen his shows many times and I, I was, I was privileged to sit down and have an interview with him and, um, uh, and Mike and Al Jardine, actually Al more recently, uh, in the past year, I've spent some time with Al, uh, on three occasions. Um, Brian is a unique thing. I mean, you know, it's almost like watching Mozart right. s- sit there and watch his music being performed around him because, I mean, he drifts off. He'll sing half the verse and Al will have to pick up the other half. Some days he just sounds terrible. Um, but there's a lovability about him and just the, just the fact that all that shit came out of his head. Right. You know, you, you just, you soak up the moments you're in Brian's presence. The piano's more of a prop than anything else. It is, but you know, occasionally, I, I tell you what, yesterday, uh, if you look on Brian's Facebook page, he did this thing for Stella McCartney and he did a, a couple of lines of Hey Jude acapella. And you listen to it and it's, it doesn't sound that great. But in that, you can still hear some sort of, uh, echo of the voice he once had. It's still there. And when he does studio albums, even up until his most recent one, No Peer Pressure, in the studio, where they can do magic with him, he still sounds great in the studio, sure. and his writing is great. It's just he's just he's got mental illness. And right. He admits it, right? You know, right. but I mean, the fact that he's been touring for twenty years now, when you think about it, he came back out in ninety nine. That's twenty years he's been doing these sort of endless tours, and you got to give it to him. The guy was af- he was afraid to leave the house at, at certain points <laughs> of his career. I and think it's his it, his wife has helped him get, Melinda, get out there. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. she's yeah. Absolutely. And I think I think that movie uh helped explain him to people as well with John Cusack, Love and Mercy. Yes. Yes. You know, I think people kind of didn't really know necessarily what the hell they they heard about him sitting in a sandbox and getting really fat and whatever happened, but you know, you when you kind of explain the whole Eugene Landy stuff and 
you know, it gets, it, you get a little more respect. And, and I tell people, you know, like, okay, if we go see Mike and the, and, and Bruce and the current version of the Beach Boys with John Cousel, who's great on the drums, you, you get the Beach Boys show. You, you can take any casual fan of the Beach Boys to go see the Beach Boys and you're going to get a thrill. But you've got to explain when you go to Brian what it is you're going to see. Otherwise, you're going to be like, what the hell's the matter with this guy? <laughs> when I took a friend who is a, a casual Beach Boys fan, and I took her to see Brian in New Hampshire, and he opened up with Until I Die. And she's looking at me like, what the hell? You know, what, what, what's this? You know, a very slow, droning song. And pretty much did the obscure stuff, which, you know, a handful of people in the audience, did, you could tell, did not want to hear. Were there for I get around and you know and the hits, um, which he did at the end in one big long medley, which he usually does. Um, but when you think, Don, how lucky you are to be able in the in twenty twenty or twenty eighteen, whatever it was, to see him sing "Till I Die." Right. You never thought you would see that. Never. never. You know what I mean? And those are like the little minor miracles of rock and roll that when they happen. It's like, you know, the lucky people who were at the Monterey Pop Festival, you know, all the lucky like, people. Like, like our friend Eric Burden. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I doubt he remembers much, but. <laughs> so what's coming up for uh, concerts in Musquamacate in the future? I know everything's up in the air because of COVID-19, but what do you have your eye on? Well, we had to cancel our Fall Fest, unfortunately. In fact, breaking news on your show that it's that that's not happening. We just decided today, obviously, but. Yeah. We've turned our uh, Musquamica Drive-In Theater into a music venue um, because we can do the social distancing um, and it works. So we have a stage now in front of the drive-in and we project it up onto the screen and we do a lot of live streaming. And so we had uh, John Ford Coley a couple weeks ago. It was great. And we've got Billy Gilman coming up. We've got Peter Noon coming up. We've got Al Copley coming up. Um, so we've got some cool concerts in addition to playing Jaws and some of these great movies. Right. Um, so we've been able to turn the drive-in into sort of a music venue this summer in Musquamacate, which is about the only entertainment we're getting. Um, it's definitely weird when, you know, you're on a stage and they're playing to cars. Um, but it's better than no live music at all, you know? Is there a website people can visit if they want to see what's going on? Sure, the drive-in is easy. It's MBA, as in Musquamica Business Association, mbadrivein.com. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank Caswell Cook for coming on and Peter Asher. And please come back again and join us at the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. We'll see you next time. I feel like going out of quiet I want to get my name in the papers So people will remember me I feel like going out Doing something really big Could this be the time or place How could I belong I must attract you somehow Because every time you look my way Yeah.